friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. He taught me how to live my life as it should be. He taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me. I've had friends before, and I can tell you that he's one who will never leave you flat. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend in Jesus. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. He taught me how to pray and how to save my soul. He taught me how to praise my God and still play rock and roll. The music may sound different, but the message is the same. It's just an instrument to praise His name. Sal, thank you very much. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I almost feel like I need to apologize to you now, particularly for the rather inappropriate gyrating of that guitarist there. But instead, I want to ask you a question. What's going through your head right now? What's going through your head right now? It's that line, isn't it? Jesus is a friend of mine. It is, isn't it? And that's because there's something about the words of the songs that we sing, isn't there? And let me apologize, that song's going to be going through your head all day now, trust me. It's been in mine all week. But there's something about the words of the songs that we sing, aren't there? There's something about them that just gets deep down inside of us. As Ryan mentioned, as we've seen over the last few weeks as we near the end of our series in Deuteronomy. The nation of Israel is standing on the edge of the promised land and there God lays before them a choice, a life or death decision. They could either wholeheartedly obey God's covenant and live long in the land or they could disobey him 
and be exiled. And as Deuteronomy draws to a close and Moses, the great leader of Israel, prepares to die, God lays before him what's going to happen. And it's not good. Please turn with me in your Bibles, whether you're here in the auditorium or watching online, to Deuteronomy chapter 31, just the chapter before where Kelly read. Deuteronomy chapter 31 from verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, you are going to rest with your ancestors and these people will soon prostitute themselves to the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day, I will become angry with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them. And in that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness in turning to other gods. Far from enjoying the blessings of God's covenant. We saw those back in chapter 28. Israel would experience the curses for disobedience. They wouldn't be enjoying God's favor in the land, but his wrath. And having revealed Israel's future apostasy to Moses, apostasy means deliberately abandoning God. It's God's next command to Moses that's going to be our focus today. God dictates a song to Moses to be taught to the people. Taught to the people of Israel that it in time might teach them. Let's keep reading there in Deuteronomy chapter 31 from verse 19. Now God says to Moses, now write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land, flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their ancestors, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and calamities come on them, this song, will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. I know what they are disposed to do even before I bring them into the land I promised them on oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. This song that we're studying today was composed by God that it might serve as a witness against Israel when they'd enter the promised land and forget God. As we see there in verse 21, long after Israel had forgotten God, they wouldn't have forgotten this song. The words would get into their head just like the words of Jesus is a friend of mine. Just like a Mountie, Jesus always gets his man. I've been singing that to myself all week. But unlike that song, this song here wouldn't remind them of some of the central truths of the gospel. No, rather, it would serve as a witness against them. 
reminding them of why they were experiencing the covenant curses. Because they'd abandoned the God who'd given them life. Now that might seem a little bit far-fetched to you this morning. Who, who sings songs without understanding the words in them? Well, just take a look at our world. Take, for example, the carols by candlelight shows that are on TV every year. Women and men singing about the incarnation, about the lordship of Christ, without a thought for the words that they're singing. Or perhaps a little bit closer to home, the fans of the St. George Illawarra Dragons. Do we have any Dragons fans here this morning? Well done. You had your first win for the season last night. And no doubt, the fans of St. George were singing, Oh, when the saints go marching in. You know that song, don't you? Without a thought for the fact that they're singing about the second coming of Christ. Singing those words with, with no understanding of their meaning at all. And that's what Moses' song would be like. Functioning like a, like a national anthem, sung repeatedly as part of Israel's culture. With the hope that one day these, these words that they sang repeatedly would be taken to heart. That's the hope of the song. And we see that right there at the start in verse 2. Take a look at chapter 32, verse 2. The hope of this song is that these words might refresh the nation of Israel. Like rain, like dew, like showers, like abundant rain. That the words of this song, that, that they might bring forth new life in Israel. Just like new life burst forth, burst forth from the ground after rain in the arid Middle East. Okay, let's take a look at this song now. Where Moses begins with, God's faithfulness as the foundation. Verses 3 and 4. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. God's described as the rock five times throughout this song, reminding Israel of his strength, his stability, his permanence, that their security is found in him alone. And God's attributes of the rock, uh, as, as the rock are described there in verse 4, and notice how each of them just reinforces his faithfulness. His work is, is perfect. Our knowledge, our, our ways are limited. But God, no, all he does is blameless. It's flawless. All his ways are just. It's impossible for God not to be holy. Despite the prevalence of injustice in this world, he will bring about justice for his people. We can be sure of that. Because he's a faithful God who does no wrong. He's totally reliable. He keeps his promises. Upright and just is he. And friends, let me say, because God is who he says he is, we can trust him. 
We don't need to give in to fear when things don't go the way we'd hoped. We don't need to seek revenge or get our own back because we can't trust in God's justice. He'll do what is right. God is faithful and we can trust him. It's a lovely start to the song, isn't it? Perhaps, like me, you can remember singing the words of verse 4 as a chorus. Ascribe greatness to our God the rock. His work is perfect and all his ways are just. It's a catchy chorus, that song, isn't it? The only problem is it actually stops short of the point of Moses' song. God is faithful and just. But Israel, well, they were sadly the exact opposite of the God that they claimed to follow. That's what we see in verse 5. They are corrupt and not his children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. That's a pretty damning indictment, isn't it? God's chosen people, the ones called to be a light in the darkness, declared to be corrupt, warped, crooked. His chosen people now declared to be not his children. How did that happen? Well, what we see here in this song is their long downward regression. And the first step of their denial of God is there in verses 6 to 14. Forgetting God's past loving care for them. Forgetting God's past loving care for them. Yahweh was their, their father who had unfailingly cared for them. And that's what Moses points Israel back to in verses 6 and 7. Is, is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they will explain to you. If you've forgotten your history as a nation, Moses says, well, ask. Ask your ancestors. Ask your elders. Ask those who had seen God's hand. And they will tell you, as we see there in verse 8, that out of all of the nations of earth, God had chosen Israel to be his people, his treasured possession, to have the joy of intimate covenant relationship with him. That from verse 10, God had loved and protected and guided Israel. They were the apple of his eye, delivering them from bondage in Egypt providing for them as they traveled through the wilderness and now bringing them to the edge of the promised land. All of this was God's gracious work on their behalf. But they had treated him shamefully. Now I want you to notice that Moses' emphasis isn't the ingratitude of the people after God had done so much for them. Although that's definitely true. It's their folly 
in turning away from the God who loves them and who had proven that in history. The foolishness of exchanging the good and gracious God who had proved himself for pitiful, fruitless idols. The foolishness of rejecting God, having seen his love. That was the first step in Israel's apostasy, forgetting their past. And the second's there in verse 15, prosperity. Jerushim grew fat and kicked. Filled with food, they became heavy and sleek. They abandoned the God who made them and rejected the rock, their saviour. God uses an affectionate but ironic nickname for Israel here, Jerushim. Jerushim means upright one. Ironic, because Israel had proven itself to be anything but upright. They had been lavished with prosperity beyond imagination from Yahweh. Did you catch the, the vivid imagery there in verses 13 and 14, as Kel read earlier? They'd been blessed by God beyond measure, but they didn't bow down in response, in thankfulness to him. They became fat, rebellious, stubborn, headstrong, kicking out, abandoning the God who had made them and saved them. Now strong and prosperous, they scoffed at the idea of needing God. They didn't need him anymore. They were going fine without him. So impressed they were by their own success, they forgot the God who had given it to them. Which led to the final sad step of apostasy. Having forgotten God's goodness and work on their behalf in the past, thinking that they were self-made, that they didn't need God anymore, they turned to the worship of other gods. Verses 16 to 18. They made him jealous with their foreign gods and angered him with their detestable idols. They sacrificed to false gods, which are not God. Gods they had not known, gods that recently appeared, gods your ancestors did not fear. You deserted the rock who fathered you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Their fickle, perverse hearts reject God and turn to idols, abandoning their faithful rock. And in the second half of the song, Moses describes God's response to all of this. And what ties it together is one word, jealousy. God's jealousy over his people and God's jealousy for his name. Let's start with God's jealousy over his people. Let's keep reading in verse 19. The Lord saw this and rejected them because he was angered by his sons and daughters. I will hide my face from them, he said, and see what their end will be. For they are a perverse generation, children who are unfaithful. They made me jealous by what is not God and angered me with their worthless idols. I will make them envious 
by those who are not a people. I will make them angry by a nation that has no understanding. God's covenant love demands exclusive loyalty from his people. And Israel's wholesale rejection of him ignited his holy anger. Israel had departed from him. And so he would withdraw his presence, his blessing from the people. And as we see there in verse 21, God would send in the nations as agents of judgment on his people. We looked at the way that God used the Babylonians to this end in Jeremiah's day last year, so we're not going to revisit that now. But the sad consequences of Israel's apostasy are laid out here. Fire. The land and its produce devoured. Calamity. Military attack. Famine. Plague. And ultimately, exile. None would escape the covenant curse. But yet... God wouldn't destroy Israel completely. As we see here in verses 26 and 27, he holds back. He holds back full destruction of Israel so that the nations around might know that it was he and not them that was sovereign, that was in control over Israel's fate. He didn't want the nations to draw the wrong conclusion, to think that it was their power, their military might, that it was their God achieving victory over Israel and its gods. That would dishonor God, wouldn't it? That false perception would give the wrong impression of him. And so he spares Israel from full destruction. And in fact, as we see in verses 32 to 35, he judges Israel's enemies too, for their sin. But friends, please see, not only does God not destroy Israel as their sins deserve, he graciously pardons and restores his people. Not because they deserved it, but for the glory of his name. Take a look at verse 36. It's Deuteronomy 32, 36. The Lord will vindicate his people and relent concerning his servants when he sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or, flee, or, or free. Having punished his people for their sin, satisfying his holiness, he restores them in love. He has pity on his rebellious but now powerless children. Verse 39, see now that I myself am he, God says. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. God alone is sovereign over the events of history. And just as he had wounded his people, now he would heal. And so the song ends in verse 43. Perhaps unexpectedly, with a cry of celebration, inviting all of the nations to come and to celebrate 
God's grace in that having justly punished his people, he would then restore and renew his covenant relationship with them. Rejoice, you nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Rejoice, for the one who wounded will now heal. My friends, God is just as jealous for the glory of his name today as he was back in Moses' day. So now we're going to ask ourselves the question, how can we avoid falling into the same trap as Israel? Maybe as you sit here this morning or watch online, you can see a, a little bit, perhaps a lot, of Israel in yourself. First, forgetting God's goodness in the past. Forgetting all of the ways that he has blessed and led and guided you. Then thinking that all that you have is yours to enjoy. That it's yours to protect, to hold on to, to glory in. And now, perhaps, your heart is more excited by idols. Good gifts that can go wrong. Things like family, the surf, holidays. Your heart's more enraptured by those things than Jesus. I think there's a bit of that in all of us, isn't there, friends? So what do we do? Well, most fundamentally, we need to remember. We need to remember. And this is where we need each other. Can you turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3? Whether you're here or online, please turn with me to, to Hebrews chapter 3. This is an important passage for each of us to, to read and to apply. Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to read from verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We need to encourage each other, friends, to remember God's faithfulness, both in the good times, but also in the hard. In those times where we, where we get a bit cocky, when we get a bit full of ourselves and our own importance, we need brothers and sisters to remind us that we are not God, that all that we have is from him and for him. It's simply given to us as a trust to be used for his purposes, to be reminded that we didn't earn our possessions, our skills. They're a gracious gift from God. Friends, we need to be bold in reminding each other of that so that our spiritual senses don't get dulled by prosperity. We need to keep pointing each other to Jesus, to the absolute folly of turning away from the Jesus who loves us and has proven that to us on the cross 
turning away from him to fruitless, worthless idols. We need each other. We need to be reminding each other of that. I don't know if we're that good at that one, are we? I suspect we're better at this one. We also need to remind each other of God's faithfulness in the midst of hard times. That comes more naturally to us, doesn't it? That just as he hasn't abandoned his people in the past, that just as he doesn't abandon his people now, that equally he won't abandon us in the midst of trial and suffering. That's why it's so important, my brothers and sisters, that we know each other, that we genuinely know each other, beyond the surface level, the facade that we like to present. Why do I say that? Well, because if I don't know your trials, if I don't know your struggles, if I don't know your sin battles, how can I be encouraged by God's faithfulness in your life? If I don't know the hard times, the the journeys that are dark that you're walking through or have been through, how can I be encouraged as your brother that God's going to lead me through as well? We need to know each other deeply and intimately and to be real with each other. That we might be encouraged that God will do the same in our lives that he has in others. Just this last week, I was blessed in that very way by a pastor friend who pointed me from my circumstances to Jesus. What I needed. Pointing me from my fear and my anxiety and my questions to God and to his sovereign control. And that only happened because of vulnerability and sharing. Maybe that's something we could all step into a little bit more. We need to remember. We need to remember. But we also need to heed the warning. Because just as Moses' song served as a warning for Israel, it does for us too. It's so easy for us to sing the song, to have the word of God on our lips, but yet it fail to penetrate our hearts. To declare that Jesus is Lord with our lips, but yet be living with self as king day by day. To open the Bible and then intentionally close ourselves to its application, just as we close its cover. Just as our physical existence is sustained by his powerful word, just as we enter into new life through the living and enduring word, we're sustained, Jesus says, not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's one of the key warnings of this song for us. It shows us, confrontingly, how quick we are to worship with our lips, but not our lives. To sing the song, but never take the word to heart. Can I ask you, can you think of one thing that has pierced you in the last week from God's word and that you're actively seeking to apply to your life? Let me ask that again. Can you think of just one thing 
that from God's word has pierced your heart this week and that you're actively trying to put into practice. It might be in your own personal Bible study. It might have been in a house church group. It might have been in a sermon. Can you think of one thing that God's asking you to put into practice? If not, maybe you're falling into this trap. Friends, please see, Jesus didn't call us to study him, but to follow him. Jesus didn't call us to grow in our knowledge of him and then for it all to stay up here. He calls us to follow in his footsteps as his disciples. We need to make sure we're doing that, that we don't just sing the song, but it never penetrate the heart. One last key takeaway for us. I think this is an important one for us in our world today. Moses' song is a hard, uncompromising word. There's no two ways about it. We only read the first half of it this morning. Please read the rest when you get home. It's a hard, uncompromising truth. A word that most would reject. But Moses still shared it. As my brothers and sisters should we? Sharing the full counsel of God with others, including the bits that are hard, that might make us uncomfortable. And even if it admits getting cancelled by our culture today. Because this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, from verse 15. For we, speaking of believers, for we are to God the, pre, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. God's word is a message of judgment to some. But praise God, it's a message of salvation to others. Some will receive the word and repent and believe. Our responsibility is to share, even knowing that, sadly, some of those who might hear the message, just like Moses' song, will understand it all too late, heartbreakingly, as it describes the reality of their judgment. My friends, Moses' song, whilst filled with rebuke and judgment, no doubt, also offers us a most glorious hope. Yes, unfaithfulness must be punished. But there's hope in God's great compassion and commitment to his covenant people. For in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, judgment wasn't the last word. For he bore that on himself on the cross. But hope. Where he graciously offers us forgiveness of sin and hope for the future as we look forward to that day, that day that was foreshadowed there in verse 43, that will ultimately be fulfilled when Jesus comes again, when the entire universe turns into a symphony of praise for our King, when the nations will rejoice in God's atonement for his people. Moses' song isn't the last song, friends. Jesus' song is. And 
these are the words of this new song, the eternal song sung in heaven. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God people from every tribe and language and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That, my brothers and sisters, is the final song. Jesus' song. The eternal song. Let's pray and give thanks to our God. Our Lord and our God, our hearts and our minds are so filled with this image of your glory, of the resurrected Son seated on the throne, receiving all honour and glory and praise. We worship you, our God and our King, that you have purchased salvation for us that you have atoned for our sin and that now people from all nations just like us here in Australia, that we can look forward to that day of hope where your song of praise will, raise out, will, will rise out throughout the earth. Lord, we pray that you might help us to endure as we look forward to that day. You are the one who has saved and redeemed us you are the one who is worthy of every moment of our life lived in your service. Help us to remember, Lord, we pray. Help us to remember your goodness and your grace in our lives. Help us, Lord, we pray, to not be seduced by, by the prosperity of our world, to think that we're self-made men and women, but to see that all that we have is from you and for you. May we worship you the one true God alone.
both this and every day for the glory of your name. Amen.